Good evening, everybody. Nearly got caught out there. It was the third verse, and I was thinking, are we going to sing the third verse? So apologies, I'm dashing up here. Um, really good to be with you. Uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you this evening. Thank you to Paul for the invitation. Uh, just in way of introduction, um, as has already been said, I'm at, currently at Deeside Christian Fellowship, where I'm training for pastoral ministry. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm enjoying it. I'm in the, just starting my second of three years at Deeside, and some of you will know some of the members. Two of them I can spot here, um, which is good to see you. Um, so I'm glad that I was invited today to open God's Word with you. Uh, I guess it would be a mess if I didn't mention uh, how surreal these last few days have been uh, for many of us. Uh, there's been a constant in our lives in this in this country for a number of years, a constant all through my life, and I imagine a constant through just about everybody in here's life, and that's the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. Um, so it's with regret, obviously, that she has passed away, but we give thanks for her and her faith, which, while her being there was a constant for us, her faith was clearly a constant in her life, and so we're thankful for that faith. And as has been prayed for um, earlier on, uh, we pray for our new king, that he too would share that faith of his mother, uh, that the example that his mother set and the teaching of his mother would bear fruit in Charles III's life as well. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to Revelation chapter 1. I'll be reading from verse 9 to verse 20. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through to verse 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pegamon, and to, and to Thyatria, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Uh, um, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at him. I fell as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, sorry, those that are, are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, 
and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Let us pray before we move on. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We just thank you that there is value in every word in the Bible. Because it is your word. We just pray that you would equip me now to speak. Uh, We just pray that your spirit would speak. And that your spirit would also help those listening to apply this passage to their lives. To see you more clearly and to see more clearly how they are to live for you and your glory. So Father we need your help. So help us this evening. Help us to see you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. There are some things in life that we endure. Things that we think will just never come to an end. Now I'm certainly hoping that the next 30 or 40 minutes will not be that for you. But I once run the London Marathon. I know we've got a couple of runners here this evening. I once run the London Marathon. It was some time ago, but it's still very vivid in my memory. I remember starting uh, on a beautiful April, April morning, full of excitement, full of enthusiasm, and really enjoying the early miles. I bounded on just with the other runners. But as I approached halfway, something happened. Things started getting harder. It got more difficult. And about the time when I got to the three-quarter mark, things got even harder. And running became a real struggle. The simple motion of lifting one leg over the other became arduous. It became really, really hard. I was just desperate for the fatigue that I was feeling in my legs to stop. But I knew that if I stopped before the end, then I wouldn't, I would fail in my goal to run the London Marathon. I didn't want to run and walk the London Marathon, I wanted to run the London Marathon. The thought, the sense of the accomplishment that I would feel at the end somehow enabled me just to keep going, to keep lifting one leg over the other, to endure the struggle. Now, the New Testament writers often describe living the Christian life as being like running a race. The author of the letter of Hebrews, for example, in chapter 12, verse 1, writes, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Apostle Paul also said, you may recall, he told his child in the faith, Timothy, in Timothy chapter 2, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7, that he had finished the race and he had kept the faith. Do you see the link there between running and keeping the faith? 
So following Jesus demands patient endurance. It requires keeping on going despite it being hard. And this is what God, through the Apostle John, calls us to in these 12 verses that we're looking at in Revelation 1 this evening. John, as we all know, was a beloved disciple of Jesus. He was described as the one that Jesus loved. But notice how he starts this passage. He doesn't start in verse 9 by talking about the relationship that he, he has with Jesus. But instead he starts out by talking about the relationship that he has with other believers. The relationship that he has with us. Let me read it again for us. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Did you notice John used two words to describe his connection to us here? Firstly, he uses the word brother. Now John was reminding the followers of Jesus in the seven churches to whom he was writing, but also to us as well, that Christians belong to each other. We're connected to each other in an intimate way through Jesus. So as Christians here gathered this evening, we're not merely gathering as acquaintances. We're not merely gathering even as friends. It's deeper than that. We're here tonight gathering as family. As the adopted children of God, we gather here this evening as brothers and sisters. We may not be connected by DNA, although perhaps some of you are, but we are connected through Jesus. Do you love each other as much as you love your family? It's a question you need to ask yourselves. The words of Hebrews 11 verses 24 and 25 have really impressed, really impressed on me lately. At D-Side we've been working through the book of Hebrews in the evening services. I just want to read these verses for you in Hebrews 11 verse 24 and 25. Here the author says, Let us consider how to stir, stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near now I used to think gathering together for worship was purely a vertical thing that it was about coming to worship God and it certainly is that but it's more than that and these verses in Hebrews help me to see that there should also be a horizontal dimension to why we gather to worship. And that we gather to worship to encourage each other on to good works. So we're f firstly we're family. Secondly John uses the word partner. We're part of God's family. And because of that, we have a shared experience. Because of that, we have also a shared mission. 
If you're a Christian, then you're on a different mission to your friends or neighbours or your co-workers, um, the co-workers who are not Christians. Our mission is not the same as theirs. You're on a mission, as all of us who are Christians are on the same mission, to, f- to glorify God by following his Son and making him known. But it's not a mission that we're to undertake in isolation, but rather together in community, as family, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to work at this mission together. Mainly within our local community of believers, but also, importantly, with other brothers and sisters across the land and even across the world. Last weekend, we had a, a men's weekend um, at Fiscali House. Some of you may know it. Um, we had a men's weekend and we shared that weekend with two other fellowships a fellowship in Edinburgh and a fellowship in Inverness. And at chatting to the other, the other men from these different churches was such an encouragement to me. Because it reminded me that although we, we belong to different fellowships, we're on the same mission. We're on the same mission to glorify God by following him, by following Jesus and making him known. The work of following Jesus and making him known is not easy though I'm sure many of you here can testify that it's not easy and it's not meant to be easy you may recall Jesus telling John and the other disciples what it means to follow him what it means to follow him and make him known he said in Matthew 10 he told Jesus told his disciples that they would be hated For his name's sake. Pretty blunt, isn't it? Tribulation comes as part of the package. It comes as part of the course of living under the rule of Jesus. It comes because Jesus' rule is not respected. Certainly not like Queen Elizabeth's was respected. Peter writes in chapter 2 of this first letter... He says, sorry, Peter writes in chapter 2 of his first letter, If when you do good and suffer, for if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to do this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. We suffer, or we're called to suffer, like our saviour our saviour suffered and so we shouldn't be surprised ourselves by suffering and if we're not experiencing suffering and hardship for our allegiance to Christ then we should ask ourselves why not because the mark of a Christian is to patiently endure tribulation together with other believers It's the task of keep going. To not stop trusting. To not stop 
living for and proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Saviour even when it's hard. John modelled this patient endurance so well. We read in verse 9 of this passage in Revelation 1 that he's been exiled to the land of Patmos, to the island of Patmos, not because he's done something wrong, but because of his faithfulness to the scriptures. His faithfulness to show how the scriptures point to Jesus Christ. When John referred to the word of God in this section, he was referring to both the New and the Old Testaments. And this should act as a reminder to us that all the Bible testifies about Christ. It's not just the New Testament that's about Christ, but it's the Old Testament as well. The Old looks forward to Christ, and the New looks back to his first coming, and forward, as we'll see in a moment, to his second coming. As John did, we need to take seriously Jesus' great commission to make disciples, to baptise them, and to teach them to observe all that Jesus had commanded. And we must endure. We must keep going like John did. The suffering that comes with it. So following and proclaiming Jesus is not easy. It demands patient endurance as our text tells us. But how do we keep going? How do we keep going? Because it's so hard. What motivates us to continue on this journey of faith? Let's look on into verse 12 to 16. In these verses, John describes a vision that he tells us in verse 10 was brought to him by the Spirit of God. In verse 11, he informs us that the vision was accompanied by an audible command. A voice spoke. For John, and told John to make a written record of what he'd seen. And then to send it to these seven churches in Asia. And then we see, we, we, we read what John saw in the next verses. The first thing that John sees in verse 12 is the seven golden lampstands. Now we all know that the purpose of a lamp is... We all, maybe have, we all have lamps, I'm assuming, in our homes. The purpose of a lamp is to provide light. It's to illuminate, to make something visible. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, Paul challenges us to shine like lights by holding fast to the word of life in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul in Philippians tells us to be lights. And in Matthew 5, um, Jesus describes those who follow him as the light of the world. And he goes on to instruct us not to hide the light of Christ, but, but shine before others so that God may be glorified. 
So in this symbolism here that we see of these seven golden lampstands, the churches are described as the lamps. John is further emphasizing the need for these groups of believers to faithfully testify of Jesus, the true light of the world. Stood in the presence of these lamps, though, as we move on to verse 13, we see somebody. We see the one like a son of man. Now many of you will know, perhaps all of you will know, that this same title was used by Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. For the one who came in the clouds of heaven, and who was given dominion, glory, and an everlasting kingdom by the ancient of days. In the next four verses, verses 13 to 16, John describes the appearance of this king in great detail. And his descriptions match, they mirror what, how Daniel, or Daniel's vision um, of this same king. There are eight things that we see, eight different items that we see here. Firstly, John observed that the king was clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. John here seems to be connecting the king described here with the Old Testament high priest who is responsible for acting as a mediator between God and his people. Secondly, John described the king, this, this king's hair as white, white like wool, white like snow. And this is exactly how Daniel refers to God, the ancient of days in Daniel 7. This clearly is showing how God and this king are connected together. Thirdly, John described the king's eyes. He says that these eyes are like flames of fire. John, John is using here the same phrase. Late, John uses the same phrase later on in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, to describe the warrior king's righteous judgment. Are you building a picture? Of who this vision of this of the person that John sees in this vision. Fourthly, moving on to verse fourteen, John depicted the king's feet, and he says these these feet are like burnished bronze that is refined in a furnace. And this symbolizes, as you'll know, this purifying, this this sense of moral purity. But there's no dross found in it. Fifthly, we hear, of, we hear John describe the king's voice. The king's voice is described like the roar of many waters, which is a clear reference to Ezekiel's vision of the Almighty in chapters 1 and 43 of Ezekiel. Going on to verse 15, we see John described the king as holding seven stars in his right hand. In verse 20, John explained that this was allegory for the angels 
of the seven churches. Clearly John was symbolising the king's authority not just over earth but his authority over heaven as well and all that is in heaven. Now we see seventhly John described the king's word to the king's sword as being sharp and two-edged. Sorry, John described the king's sword sharp and two-edged protruding from his mouth which is a very similar to the description of Isaiah's warrior king in Isaiah 49, verse 2. And finally, we see the king's face. And the king's face is described as being like the sun, shining in full strength. This seems to be an allusion to Judges chapter 5, verse 31, which uses the same language to describe the victorious Israelite warrior. When we think of the sun, can we look at the sun for very long? We can't look at the sun for very long because of its pure brightness. Its pure brightness will blind us. And the same image, same imagery is, is used here. It's clear from this description that the one who's described by John as the one like the Son of Man is a vision of the same messianic warrior that Daniel saw, that Ezekiel saw, and that the author of Judges saw. We learn in verse 18 that their vision of this end-time messianic warrior king is none other than Jesus, the one who died and rose again. Now John, as we know, was a disciple of Jesus. He'd known Jesus for at least three years. But this was not Jesus as John had known him. The humble ordinary looking Jesus this was a Jesus that terrified John this was the exalted Jesus this was Jesus unveiled in all his royal glory this was not the Jesus who was born in a meagre manger and that came to die for sinners but the Jesus who will come again to judge the world. The, the vision of Jesus was given to John for the sole purpose of encouraging the church to keep going despite their challenges. This is the Jesus that we, we're to look at, to focus on as we patiently endure. Jesus came in his humiliation. 2,000 years ago to die on a cross to save sinners. He came for us to make us right with God. But when he comes back, then he is coming for his people. He's coming to judge the world and take his people to himself. And we see why we're to keep looking to him as we look ahead to verse 17 and 20. Here we see that the reason we're to, we're, we're to patiently endure by focusing on Jesus 
is because he's in control he's in control now and forever seeing this vision of the risen Jesus John tells us in verse, 30, verse 17 that he fell at Jesus feet as though dead John was overwhelmed by what he'd seen and John had seen many things over his years at this point as you know he was an old man many things John had seen remember he'd watched the transfiguration of Jesus remember he was there with James and Peter he'd seen Jesus face shine like the sun as he spoke with Moses and Elijah up the mountain he'd fallen to his face terrified at the realization who Jesus was at the transfiguration but yet again He's terrified. He'd seen something of the glory of the deity of Christ. The deity that had been hidden from his view when Jesus was on earth. But now John was overcome by this vision of the risen Lord. And he was completely and utterly broken by the experience. There's nothing more glorious than seeing the risen Lord. But there's also nothing more terrifying than seeing the risen Lord. Because of his utter purity, because of his utter righteousness. In Revelation 1 verse 17, John describes how he'd been broken again at seeing the majesty of his glorified friend but just like at the transfiguration his friend did not leave him in that state of brokenness but in his compassion and love Jesus reached out with the hands that he held the stars in he reached out and touched Jesus touched John on the shoulder telling him that he need not fear the thing that frightened John most, as I said, was being brought face to face with God himself. Before Jesus opened his mouth, John knew by Jesus' very appearance that he was standing before God Almighty himself. He recognised this um, this, this one like the son of man is God himself in the person of Jesus but when Jesus opens his mouth he audibly confirms this we have people today that tell us that Jesus never said he was God if anyone, uh, anyone says that to you take them to Revelation 1 and you'll see that Jesus says he is God he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of, I have the keys of death and Hades. Now in saying, I am the first and the last, Jesus is saying that he supersedes creation. That he came before 
creation. That there was nothing before Jesus. There was no matter. There was nothing. That he was there before anything was. And Jesus uses the same words you may recall about himself. We see it, sorry, Jesus used the same words that God used about himself to the prophet Isaiah. And also in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1, the verse just before the passage that we're looking at today, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the God who is sovereign over all of history. Jesus is saying this about himself. He's over and beyond the beginning and the end of the universe. Jesus is declaring himself to be God. Jesus goes on describing himself as the living one. Now we know that life as a Christian is hard work. But we must remember that we worship and serve a living king. Not a dead one, but a living king. Our king may have died at Calvary, but he didn't stay dead. He's alive and he reigns today, and this is what this passage is all about. As he proclaimed to John in verse 18, I died, and behold, I am alive. This is our hope. This is how we can continue day by day with the struggle of living the Christian life before this fallen and crooked world. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And that means Jesus is immortal. He's just think of that. Jesus is immortal. He's not like us. Our death is inevitable. We die, all of us, unless Christ returns before then. We will die because we are sinners. But Jesus wasn't a sinner, was he? We know he wasn't a sinner. He was sinless. He had no sin in him to die for. Death is the consequence of sin. But Jesus had no sin. Jesus had no need to die. But he did die. And he died because he chose to die. And he chose to die for us. He came to us as a man to die for us. To take the punishment that our sin deserved. So that we can be forgiven. He took charge of our salvation because we were incapable, helpless to do anything about it. By doing what was necessary to achieve our salvation. He died for us. His death, though, could not hold him going on. He rose, the passage tells us, to demonstrate his authority over sin and death. But not only did Jesus declare that he died and then rose, but he proclaimed that he'd remain alive forevermore. 
like most of us I've not known as having any other monarch but Elizabeth II. The longevity of her reign is unprecedented. So much so that it's hard for us to think of her just not being here. She's so ingrained in our psyche in some ways. But she has died. We know she's died because many of us may have seen the coffin pass by today. She was a constant in our nation. But just like all earthly monarchs, her reign has come to an end. And she, on account of her, tr- her trust in Christ, assuming that she had a genuine faith that she proclaimed, is with our eternal King, the everlasting King, King Jesus, who will reign not just today, not just tomorrow and the day after, or for a hundred years, but forever. Long live the King has been a recurring cry on the news channels over the last couple of days. But our Heavenly King will not live long. He will live forever. He sat on his throne and he will never be removed from his throne. He will remain there forever. Jesus' authority over death was not just over his own death but everyone's death. I have the keys of death and Hades, he said to John. The extent of Jesus' control over death has no limits. He's in charge of my death and your death and everybody who has ever lived's death. He holds the keys. He he has the authority to open the doors beyond death. To both heaven and to hell. And if we trust in Jesus then we belong to him. And he walks alongside us. And opens the door to eternal life in heaven. However the warning is stark in scripture for those who do not trust him. To those who reject him. And as hard as it is to tell people about that, it's remiss of us not to. To reject Jesus' work of salvation. Then he will, we will come face to face with him and he will open the door to Hades. To eternal suffering. Jesus holds both sets of keys. And is the only one through which we can be saved. He is the only one whom which we can enter into heaven. Because he has the keys to the door. You may know the well-known modern hymn by Stuart Townsend. As I was reflecting for this message, I was reminding, reminded of these words. From life's first cry to final breath Jesus command our destiny and that no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand Jesus is in complete control he will not relinquish that control 
we can trust him we can continue to live for him knowing confidently that he is in control so Jesus encourages John and those of us who like John have responded to Jesus' call his call to trust him we can respond to that call to continue to patiently endure by keeping our focus on who Jesus is remembering that he is control not just today but forever so if you've not yet trusted in Jesus been assured that most of you here are believers but you never know if you've not yet trusted in Jesus then please consider who he said he is consider the keys that he holds and humbly come to him in prayer acknowledging that you have a sin problem and that Jesus' death was to pay the penalty for your sin and then trust him trust him today but trust him for the rest of your life trust that in this act of faith that you've been brought into his family and that the door of heaven has been opened to you and then tell someone I'm sure this fellowship of believers would love to encourage you today let us pray Father we just thank you for your son Jesus your son Jesus in whom we come to you Father we just thank you that Jesus being immortal had no need to die but he chose to die for us for no other reason but to save us from our sins and to open the doors to us to paradise to eternal life with you Father I just pray if there be somebody out here today that doesn't know you I just pray that in this passage that we've read they would reflect on that they would see who you truly are who your son is and what he controls and I just pray that they would turn to him for eternal life that you would open the doors for them to be with you forever to be with us now be with us as we leave here this evening help us to keep going despite the challenges of life and the world around us despite the challenges that we face to proclaim the gospel help us to do it faithfully help us to do it faithfully knowing who your son Jesus is and knowing that he is in complete control of now and forever in his name we pray Amen.